You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning. My turn to say good morning and welcome to Grace Community Church. Uh, So glad that you chose to worship with us this morning. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here at Grace. Um, A couple of things I want to mention before we get started. First of all, these flowers from a funeral that we had a week ago yesterday, Saturday. Brian Bergman's wife, Sandy, uh, passed away and went to be with the Lord. Please continue to lift up Brian uh, in your prayers. Uh, Also, I want to mention that last week, um, our worship team who uh, prepare so faithfully uh, was not able to sing the last song, which happened to be our benevolence offering also, because the preacher got long-winded and had to cut it short. So next week, give twice as much as you typically would for benevolence offering. We have some needs, and so please... uh, Participate in that next Sunday. And then for all Grace Connection graduates, if you were in the class this morning, you finished up, you're a graduate, if you've been there before, if you would like to um, meet with a couple of elders to give your testimonies, to, to, to go in that next step, take that next step toward membership, then after the service this morning, meet in the welcome room. Elders, please Uh, help one another. Remember, we need to get to the welcome room. In fact, you can get out during the benediction if you want to, uh, but just be there so that we can make connections and set up times to um, share testimonies. Also, pray for Deb Moneypenny, who uh, broke her, what was it, Mike? Patella. I thought so, but I was afraid to say it. In four places, it was in four pieces, so they did surgery with screws and all kinds of things this past week. And, of course, Deb likes to sit around. (laughs) Not true at all. She runs, I don't know how many miles a day, or used to anyway, and she's out splitting wood and doing all kinds of stuff. So pray for Deb and pray for Mike uh, as well, and pray for Deb uh, again. So... Um, just lots of different things going on this time of the year. Seems like things just sort of blow up this time of the year, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Well, if you're new to Grace, if this is your very first time here, you will have discerned by now that the sermon will have something to do with the book of Isaiah. Uh, and actually, we have been here since February. This is not the first Sunday we're doing Isaiah. I had ambitious plans to finish up Isaiah before the end of Advent, which begins week after next. Uh, but not going to happen. Um, I, my new goal is the end of this year or just after the first of the year, possibly, hopefully by the end of this year. The Isaiah sermons are going to fit the Advent themes. It's just going to flow right on through. And we will also, I just want to mention to you uh, that next Sunday, it's always our custom, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, for there to be a, a, a shorter message and then sharing testimony. So we're going to be doing that next week. And I would love especially to hear how uh, the Lord has been teaching you, convicting you, um, helping grow you spiritually through this study in Isaiah. But whatever you want to share those 
words of thanksgiving that Ricky was talking about this morning. We'll share together next Sunday and also on December 23rd. We have two times a year. I wish they weren't so close, but it just works out that way. And the, the, the second one is the Sunday closest to Christmas. That'll be the 23rd of December this year. We'll also have some time of testimony. One of the reasons that I've decided not to hurry through this last section of Isaiah, Isaiah 55 through uh, 56 through 66, is because these chapters tell us so much about God's character, specifically about an aspect of God's character uh, that we need to understand and embrace. If you remember, I think I, if going left to right, I did it backwards for you guys last time, but in the first 39 chapters, uh, the Lord says to his people, Israel, you need to live righteously if you want to relate properly to me. And it's apparent that you absolutely cannot do it. So then in chapters 40 through 55, he says, so I'm going to do something on your behalf. I'm going to send my servant who is going to suffer in your place. Then in these last 11 chapters, 55 through Uh, 56 through 66, he's saying, now, because you have been redeemed by the suffering servant, I am going to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. You are going to live in the power, with the power of God, with the power of my Holy Spirit in you. Now, a, a lot of people were saying, oh, yes, yes, I believe in Yahweh. I believe in his plan, but they really weren't living like it. So there's a lot of back and forth about false religion and true religion. And really, this is the place, folks, where most of us sit right here. And so that's why I don't want to hurry through this end of the chapter. And there are things that we need to be reminded of week in and week out. Uh, Isaiah 56 through 66 reminds us of the theme that we talked about early in our study that was proposed by James Hamilton, who David heard this week. Uh, at, at, um, in Denver at a conference where he was, ETS, Evangelical Theological Society. God's glory in salvation through judgment. There are a lot of people that I respect a great deal that would say, you cannot summarize the Bible. You can't whittle it down to one theme. Americans are great reductionists. We like to do that. We like to get everything to the simplest possible form and say, this is what it is. This is a great attempt. If this is not the theme of the Bible, it's very close. God's glory in salvation through judgment. Look, we live in a day when technology and knowledge have given us a sense that we are almost gods. And there are very smart people talking in language that would shock you that we are approaching status of divinity. How do you approach divinity? That's crazy. Either you are or you're not. But we think we're gods because we can do so very much. We are, in fact, a people who are offended that God will not think of us as he ought to think. We're offended by the notion that God judges sin because sin is a very relative Thing anyway, right? What's sin to you might not necessarily be sin to me and vice versa. But whatever I think is sin in this day 
If I'm articulate and I've got a big platform and a lot of followers, you better listen to me. So today's message comes from Isaiah 59. But before we get to the text, I want to share three guiding principles for understanding Isaiah. And truly these principles apply to all of Scripture, wherever you're reading, in the Old Testament or New Testament. And before we get started, I just want to say this. I, I, I think one of the most difficult jobs that I have, and it's not just ministry, it's just in life. The Lord keeps putting people in my path where I have to say difficult things. I just have to say difficult things day in and day out. I have to say, you know, you really need to give attention to this. And I promise you, if I talk to you on an individual basis, it might not uh, sound uh, like it does sometimes in, in, in a sermon because I'm going to be gentle. I, I, I'm not good at hearing difficult things myself. If you're gentle with me, it makes it a lot easier. So we always treat people the way we want to be treated, right? So there are difficult things, though, that all of us need to hear. And there are difficult things from Scripture that we need to hear over and over. And it's one of the beautiful benefits of being here on Sunday morning and being in home group. We're forced to say, okay, this is what God says. I may not like it. I might not present it as directly as God has done. But either I believe it or I don't. So three principles, and that will be the last principle. The first one is this. Questions about a loving and sovereign God in relation to evil in the world. How can, how can there be evil in the world if there's such a loving, sovereign God? These questions have always existed and will continue to exist until God has executed judgment on all his enemies. And again, this is the point in this last um, 11 chapters. One of the reasons I don't want to rush through. And it's not because I want to say, ah, God's going to judge his enemies. Not at all. It's just that I know we are so disinclined to believe that that's the kind of God who exists that we need to or pride at this level. And it ought to bring compassion in our hearts, not a sense of arrogance or pride, but passion. So several of you are teachers, right? I mean, at all levels, starting from preschool all the way up through graduate school. I doubt seriously, though, you have ever had a student, you were blessed to have a student in your class who knew a great deal more about the topic you're teaching than you do. Actually, I think all teachers have had that student at one time or another. So when you have that student, are you amused or frustrated or angry? Just imagine how God feels when his creatures scold him. For his ways, especially when they question his love in a world that he could control if only he cared enough. But apparently he doesn't care enough. Yahweh is patient the way they deserve to be treated. Let's just say that Yahweh is patient <laughs> to a point. One day he will silence all his enemies, and he will be perfectly righteous when he does so. Second, another principle. The God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament are one and the same. Look, say it over and over and over. And again, it always bears repeating. 
It's not two stories we're looking at. It's one story with two chapters, one story with two parts, Old Testament, New Testament. You know the perception, don't you, that most people have. The Old Testament God is a God of wrath. He's angry. The New Testament God is a God of love. He's gracious. He overlooks sin. God never overlooks sin. He had to do something very dramatic about it, which Isaiah 59 points to. Um, As I have read and thought through these last 11 chapters in Isaiah, both in the text itself and the implications of the text, my mind keeps drifting to the book of Revelation. Now, most people of today, a lot of people, I shouldn't say most people, a lot of people come to the book of Revelation trying to determine what's going to happen next. How's it going to all end? What are we going to do? But that's not the way the initial readers read it. I mean, they, they had some of that in mind, but, but they were thinking about, wait a minute, here's a God who's going to defend us. You have to realize it. In AD 90, somewhere in that neighborhood is when John wrote uh, Revelation. And during that time, Christians were being severely persecuted. In fact, John had been exiled to, to the Isle of Patmos, breaking rocks with the rogues of the empire out there as an old man. He was almost 90 years old, hard labor on an island that was desolate. And John thought a lot about Isaiah. The Lord directed him to Isaiah. He directed him to a lot of Old Testament passages. And the promise that God would judge his enemies, who were also the enemies and severe persecutors of believers, must have been a great encouragement to Christians in that day. They were not permitted to say, well, yeah, you're going to get yours. You just wait till my God shows up. They weren't permitted to say that. They had to love their enemies. They had to pray for their enemies. They had to pray that God would save them as he had saved many of those who believed. But nonetheless, it had to be a comfort to say one day God's going to make all wrongs right. So God is the same all the way through the Bible. He is a God of righteous wrath and a God of immeasurable love and patience. His words and his design are clear to those who have ears to hear, which is the focus of the third guiding principle for interpreting Scripture. That is, God's word always accomplishes the purposes for which it was intended. And in the end, either we believe God or we believe in ourselves. Does God choose us or do we choose him? All right, half the room's getting ready to empty out, I know. I'm just kidding. The answer is yes, so nobody go anywhere. Or everybody go, one of the two. Uh, Scripture presents both, but if only one choice exists, then it's God choosing us. We would have to agree on that. But we see God's choice worked out, though, in our decisions to either believe him when he hears his word or to trust that we can somehow accomplish what we need to to be right with God. If we care about that sort of thing. A lot of people just hear the word and say, eh, I don't believe it. That's a, you know, people, a lot of people believe it, but that's okay. It's not for me. Jim Aycock was telling me this past week that he heard uh, David Jeremiah say that all places, every place in heaven and in hell has been reserved. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? 
even when you trust God and you believe Him, to think that your place has been reserved in heaven or in hell. The title of today's message is Our Sin, God's Remedy, Covenant Blessing. I could have just as easily entitled the message The Gospel or The Gospel in Isaiah. It's an unbelievable presentation of the, 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 the flow of the gospel. Our sin, God's remedy, covenant blessing. Our reading comes from Isaiah 59, verses 20 and 21. It is, is our custom to stand as the scriptures being read, so I will ask you out of respect for the word, if you would please, to stand. Isaiah 59, verses 20 and 21. Jacob, who turned, will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. As for me, and as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, and my words that I have put in your mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore. Remember we're over here. In Isaiah 55 to 66. And he's saying I'm going to do a new thing. Because you're incapable of doing what you need to. I've sent a redeemer. And from now on my blessing will be on you. From this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Father. um, We need good news today. And even The bad news that we hear in your word, we recognize as necessary uh, words. And I just was so grateful today for the posture that Ricky Lee uh, had when he led us to the table. A posture of thanksgiving, the Eucharist, Lord, a, a, a table where we give thanks for the sacrifice that was made in our behalf. And so as we hear from you this morning, some of this uh, word, not necessarily what we want to hear about ourselves or about people that we love. Just pray that you would open our hearts and allow us to absorb it as we are dealing with the God of the universe who created us, who has redeemed those who have repented and believed, and who has poured out blessing upon us. May we not hear this word with hearts or spirits of arrogance uh, that we can compare ourselves with others, but with fear and trembling and deep gratitude for what has been done for us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Four uh, thoughts this morning. The first being this. It is my sin, not God. That is my problem. My problem is not God. It is my sin. This is always true, whether I'm Jesus' disciple or not. It is my sin that comes between God and me. Remember, as some of us heard at a conference uh, about a month ago in Wake Forest, the Beatty said, I'm not even going to try to say his last name. He, He said, it is not my refusal to accept Jesus Christ that sends me to hell. It is my sin that sends me to hell. Now, 
you may have heard, you may have used this line lots of times, but think about it. Think about it a little more deeply. You, have, you may have said, you know, look, the only sin that will ultimately send you to hell is a refusal to believe that Jesus is the Christ. But we're all bound for hell. We're all bound for eternal damnation, eternal judgment, e eternal punishment because of our sin. Since I am fully incapable, utterly incapable of cleansing myself, then if God doesn't look, do something about my sin, I'm hopelessly lost for eternity. Let's look at Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Remember, the people were constantly coming to the Lord and saying, we've done what you told us to do. Why aren't you listening? And he's like, no, no, no. You're going through the motions, but you're not anywhere close to where I've called you to be. In the Old Testament days, you've got to consider this. Most people measured their relationship with their particular God uh, or the power of their God to defeat their enemies by their circumstances. They would say, oh, we're riding high. We're, we're the king of the hill here. And so consequently, our God is strong. Man, it looks like these people are going to run all over us. I suppose our God is not so strong. Aren't you glad that we're beyond such primitive ways of thinking? I'm sick. The Lord must be displeased with me. The people of Israel had concluded that Yahweh was unable to save them from their enemies. In Isaiah 59, 1 through 8, God reminds his people who were crying out for justice. Lord, justice. We want justice. These wicked people are oppressing us. He reminded them that they are devoid of any justice themselves. They fully lack in the justice department. So who are they to judge God's character or his ability? The problem was not with God. The problem was with the sins of the people. We all want justice, don't we? Are you sure? Do you want what you deserve? If so, it is possible. It's, I'm not accusing you. I'm just saying, just, just, just examine your heart and see if it's possible that you are desiring that justice and demanding that justice from a self-absorbed heart that looks at life all around you and determines what is just and just and unjust. I mean, it's like, well, surely I'm better than these people over here. Why doesn't God do something about this? In fact, they have the upper hand. And life in America for a long time has allowed us to insulate ourselves from problems and from people who are, who are trying to take advantage of us. But a lot of those walls are crumbling. And for some of you, you say, look, those walls never existed. There's injustice in my life every day. And you know what God is saying to the people? You want to talk to me about justice? Why don't you do justice yourself? Why don't you treat every human being like I treat you? Why don't you worry about justice rather than accusing me of being 
unjust. But when we cry out for justice and we're angry with God because we don't think he's doing the right thing, we need to ask ourselves how we would do if we received justice from a holy and perfect God in relation to how we've lived. Well, I'm pretty good. Okay, let's ask everybody that lives with you. Do you really want to take your chances with God? Who sees everything? Who said that this morning? Was that Ricky? Somebody said it. David, maybe. We're naked and open. All things before the Lord. Nothing. There is nothing he doesn't see. In verse 15, God is going to conduct a survey and determine that there is not one person... Not one person, including Isaiah, who could make up for the lack of injustice in the land. Because no one is just. In fact, in the Apostle Paul's devastating indictment of all humanity in Romans 3. You know how he quotes all those verses right there in verses 10 to 19, somewhere 18, somewhere along in there. It's just one Old Testament verse after another. Some of those come from Isaiah 59, 7 and 8. That's part of the case that he's making, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have a problem and our problem is our sin. We are called to acknowledge our sin or to repent of our sin, but we must come all the way clean with God. All the way. You know the temptation not to, don't you? Those of you who are married, are you all the way clean with your husband or wife? Well, mostly. I mean, I told her what she needed to know, right? I confessed part of my sin we have to come all the way clean with God which is the focus of our second point partial repentance isn't really repentance at all true repentance leads to salvation now the, the elements of, uh, uh, of, uh, of our salvation are repentance and faith and acknowledgement of our sin as God says we're sinners and then to believe what Jesus died for us. And one doesn't exist without the other. They go hand in hand. In fact, sometimes it's a little bit of a process. But when someone sees their sin as God says <laughs> that the kind of sinners they are. And they cry out to the Lord, oh God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. You can almost be assured faith in Christ is going to come. Because of... The prayers of one trying to earn his salvation, the confession of that one is just somehow different. And you could probably spot it if you, if you know the Lord well enough, you could spot it. Lord, we pray forgiveness for these, our many sins. You know, I don't, I don't mean to, look, there's room for liturgy, there's room, I, I'm more and more attracted to, drawn to liturgy. And confession of sin, even in a, in, a, in a service, a corporate confession of sin. But, but it's very easy to just become rote and really have this self-righteous smugness about us. But when a person repents, truly repents, man, it's, it's very evident. Isaiah 59 is a beautiful picture of the gospel. It is apparent in our study of Isaiah that when people confess their sin to the Lord so far, they did... They did so in a, hey, nobody's perfect kind of way. 
it probably had the feel of, I said, I'm sorry, all right? Why don't you do what I want you to do? I said, I'm sorry. Never heard that from your six-year-old, have you? Again, God sees us as we are, so he probably sees us as little six-year-olds running around sometimes. Um, Beginning with verse 9, Isaiah gives a beautiful model for repentant hearts. You'll read this in home group this week, not taking time to go through all of this uh, this morning. Um, You'll notice the shift from from third person, they do this and that, to first person. As Isaiah identifies with the sins of the people, he begins with a recognition of the impossibility for humans to make themselves right with God. He just says flat out, if you've got your Bible open, look, you'll see these, these phrases. Justice is far from us. We hoped for light and behold, darkness. We groped for the wall like the blind. We stumbled at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. I'm going to guess the answer to to, to many of you is yes. And Look, if you grew up in a Christian home and you can't remember a time when you did not believe that Jesus is your Savior, I am not in any way trying to make you doubt your salvation. Because as a believer, you've come to this same place. That you recognize that apart from God's intervention, you have no hope whatsoever of salvation. Whenever someone comes to me and they're struggling with doubt, although I don't hear that nearly as much as I used to. But when someone is struggling with doubt, and I say, let me ask you a question. Is there, do you, are you trusting anything other than Jesus' death on the cross to save you, and they're like, oh, no, no, I, I know I have no hope. Then I say, look, as much as a human can say it, you're saved. I'm not worried about you. You are trusting the right thing. You, you know where your hope lies. It's in the Lord. So this is not meant to make anybody doubt. This is to say to those who have never thought about this before and to help you in your presentation of the gospel. Again, we do this as gently as we can, but we need to know the raw truth that apart from Christ, there is no hope whatsoever. Are you like a blind man groping for the wall and like one who realizes that even though life is very good for you as one in full vigor, in reality, you are a dead man or a dead woman walking. It's just a matter of time. Or do you hold out hope that somehow You can be good enough because you look at all those who are evil and oppressive and unjust and who, frankly, are just not as good as you. Scripture tells us that unless we acknowledge that our sins have separated us from our God, our repentance is only partial repentance. And partial repentance is no repentance at all. When we confess our hopelessness of salvation in our own strength, it's a natural progression then to acknowledge our sin. I've, I've thought about this for a long time. And, and these words put it perfectly in Isaiah 59. They, they, they show the progression. That when you realize how helpless and hopeless you are in your own strength, it is just natural for you to begin to cry out. And a big part of repentance is to to confess that you've been trying your own way to be right in this world, to be right with God. And just to say, I can't do it anymore. And I acknowledge what you say is true. 
I've got no hope. And then it's very natural for you to confess your sin without excuse, without pretense, and without shifting blame. And by the way, since we're right here, this is why we have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We need to be reminded that we come to God and other people in the same way. Preaching the gospel to ourselves means every day we need to come to the Lord in repentance without excuse, without pretense, without shifting blame. Verses 12 to 13 provide an example of sinners who cry out to God in repentance. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. Speaking oppression and revolt. Conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Do these verses remind you of any other passage in Scripture? They remind me of Psalm 51. We're going to look at Psalm 51 in home group. Uh, leaders, it's just a little, little byline in the notes that you have received. Spend time in Psalm 51. I believe it will be an extremely profitable study in this day of self-justification and pointing fingers. Alec Motyer says this about uh, these verses, quote, and in Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, David's repentance secures God's mercy and cleansing. He cries out, Lord, please cleanse me from my sin. My iniquity is ever before you. Sin is ever before you. Please cleanse me. And he secures that. While in Isaiah 59, the prophet underlines the way repentance triggers divine reaction on our behalf. For, in response, the offended Lord now girds himself for the work of salvation. Close quote. Hey, here's another way we live out the gospel. Look, when someone has done something wrong to you, how easy do you make it for them to come to you in repentance? Do you put up walls and just say, yeah, I've heard that before. Whatever. Look, again, this is in the notes. This is a day, uh, home group notes. This is a day of which I will never forgive. Christian can't say that. We're not allowed to say, I'm not making any political statement. Everybody on every side says it. We're not allowed that luxury. Get over the idea that you are a creature of the culture. If you belong to Christ, you are a creature of the covenant community. And the rules for us are different than the rules for everybody else. And I'm just as flawed as anyone in this department. It's difficult. God, you see what happens in Isaiah 59? Read this this afternoon. Read this whole text. The people cry out, oh, I've transgressed there ever before you. And God says, what can I do? What can be done about this? He immediately he is moved to make things right. If someone has done you wrong and they confess it, move quickly to make things right. Don't hold on 
Let it go. This leads to our third point. The only solution. God's Redeemer. When God saw the full and genuine repentance of the people led by Isaiah's prayer of repentance. Which, by the way, if someone ever prays a prayer of confession here. Corporately, Lord, our sins, you be saying amen. Oh, God, yes, this is so true of me. Yes, our sins have separated us from you. When they repented, led by Isaiah's prayer of repentance, God recognized that there was no one to speak on behalf of the repentant people, and it moved him to action. Why did it have to be that way again and again? I say, I don't know, I'm not God. But it is this way. And I think the more you learn about God, the more you appreciate the fact that he's got character. And he doesn't shift. He never changes. Great is our faithfulness. We'll be singing this week. Uh, there is no shadow of turning with thee, as James tells us. God never changes. His character is steady. His heart was moved by this repentance. And he said, how can we make it right? And he looked around and there was no one. I think it's Ezekiel or Jeremiah says, I looked for a man to stand in the gap, but there was no one. This text has that same feel. So it moved God to do what the people were incapable of doing themselves. Read Lessing informs us that in Isaiah 15b through 20, there are several this is important. Think about this now. In the Hebrew, there are several past tense verbs indicating that Yahweh has said something is going to thus it is as good as done. When Yahweh makes a decision, when he says something is going to happen, it's going to happen. Isaiah 55, the word always accomplishes the purpose for which it was intended or purposes for which it was intended. But there are also in this text Future tense verbs recognized, recognizing that these promises have not yet been fulfilled. They will be fulfilled in the future. They will find their fulfillment, of course, in Jesus. So let's look at Isaiah 59, 15b and 16, and then verse 20. The Lord saw it. The Lord saw the, the, the condition of the people, and he heard that repentant heart. And it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. And a redeemer, verse 20 says, a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Israel's biggest problem was not Babylon. Sin was the biggest problem. It's the same for us. Our circumstances are not our biggest problem. You came here this morning, some of you thinking, my biggest problem is this sickness or this job or this ailment, this, this relationship that is broken that devastates me. This is my big. Your biggest problem is your sin. And I wish I'd have said our biggest problem because I, we're all in that same Boat. Our sins have separated us from God. The separation is permanent unless God does something to intervene. It's not a matter of us cleaning ourselves up to make ourselves presentable to him. His wrath against sin must be executed or else his character is 
denied. And if God's character is denied, we're all, we're all doomed. We're all in big trouble. Interestingly, while so many accuse God of being unjust, it is His mercy that keeps us from experiencing His justice, which requires His righteous wrath. We all deserve to be eternally punished in hell. And if you think, wow, it's a lot about hell today, it is. Because I am not inclined to speak about it often. I'll use it, but every single time I use it, I recognize how unpopular the concept is in our day. But God makes it clear in his word, we all deserve eternal punishment in hell. God did not sin. And this is where you got to understand that first point. I'm not making uh, a, a, a point in another direction. God did not send Jesus to save us from ourselves. He didn't send us to clean him. Send Jesus to help us realize, okay, I better clean myself up. He sent Jesus to save us from himself. In three, if you can, his love that sent Jesus to die in our place. In Romans three, if you can understand Romans three twenty one to twenty six, you understand a whole lot about everything that is related to God in this world and our sin and Jesus' death on the cross. Romans three tells us that in sending Jesus to die in our place, God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He can be righteous and yet forgive our sins on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice. And when we repent, acknowledge our sin, and we place our trust in Christ, then he is just, he continues to be righteous and holy, and he can also justify that one and declare us to be righteous. There was no one to stand between God and man because our sins had separated us from God. But instead of leaving us to our sin, a fool of themselves, you ever just let somebody, you see them going astray, you see them going to make a fool of themselves, and you could stop it, but you don't. God's not that way. He didn't leave us in our sin. Now, surely he does let us go sometimes and make fools of ourselves, and that's part of his discipline, his loving, kind discipline to bring us back. But God was not one to just leave us there. So instead of leaving us in and to our sin, the Lord's own arm brought salvation. The Redeemer who has come to Zion is, of course, Jesus, he is the savior of all who turn and look upon him for salvation. God's magnificent plan to send his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin is breathtaking. And when you catch your breath, turn to God in praise for the truth of this last point. God's eternal promise to his covenant community. Isaiah 59, 21. Isn't it a grand thing to be a part of God's family? As, as we continue through these last chapters of Isaiah, we'll begin to see more and more of what God's promises look like to those who believe. Isaiah 61 will proclaim liberty to the captives and comfort to the brokenhearted. And of course, that's Jesus, brokenhearted. Jesus coming. Um, 
Isaiah 65 will tell of the new heavens and the new earth. You thought that was only in Revelation. It started in Isaiah 65. Isaiah 66 will tell of God's judgment on his enemies. In 65, the new heavens and the new earth, the, the wolf and the lamb will graze together. All the brokenhearted will be comforted. Um, and then in 66, though, we will learn of God's judgment on his enemies. Who can us versus them for are the enemies of God's people. Now, that feels like an us versus them. I know it does. And in the end, we will see it that way. Don't you think it's a mercy of God to say, you can't think of it that way now. You've got to pray for your enemies and those who persecute you. But be wary. New Testament says that a lot. Be wary of those who despise you because they despise Christ. We need to trust that God's judgment is a good thing. God's glory in salvation through judgment. Until that day comes... We are to plead with God to save the lost, especially those with whom we have contact in our family, our neighborhoods, our, our, our business. Lord, please save this person. Isaiah 59, 21, which we read earlier, is the verse from which this last point is drawn. It's a beautiful promise of eternal life for God's covenant family. As you've heard more than a few from Babylonian captain, uh, these last Chapters of Isaiah are written for those returning from Babylonian captivity and really for all believers of all generations. So think about the connection. Instead of reading verse 21, I want us to look at verse 17. Think about the connection of Isaiah 59, 17 in conjunction with the spiritual armor that the believer has been given in, in Ephesians 6. Isaiah 59, 17. He put on righteousness. It's talking about God. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So the subtle and the not so subtle implication in the, if when you read the, the Bible as a single unit is that Jesus' followers begin to look like Jesus. Now, here's something that's really interesting. I just saw this. I didn't think about this when I was studying and preparing. We're told in Ephesians 6, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Put on the helmet of salvation. But then it says, because that's what God did. But when it comes to vengeance, what does the New Testament tell us? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. repay. We're not smart enough, not righteous enough to exact the right kind of vengeance. So we leave that to God. But the other part, we become like him. We're to put on the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. Not only do we live in hope of eternity, but we're privileged to reflect and radiate the glory of God by the way that we live and by the way we love and treat one another justly in this grand community which to which the Lord has graciously brought us. Quite interesting. God is active in his vengeance. But most of the spiritual armor is more defensive in nature. Even the, the shoes that are the, are the gospel of peace. Most likely he's talking about those Roman shoes where they would dig in. In a defensive mode. And the shield of faith, probably that 
turtle, that tortoise shell, you remember, in Gladiator, where all the arrows are coming and they bound together. It was a community effort. So we are to always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within us. But yield the sword of the Spirit very carefully because it's God who does the convicting, God who is the one. What our responsibility is, is to give the word and love those whom God has created in his own image. All people. Again, one of the best ways that we do that is to love one another. By this shall all men know you are my disciples, that you have love for, for one another. May the name of the Lord be praised. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we know that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword and it pierces to the very intimate places of our body and it's constantly uh, revealing who we are and also revealing who you are. And when we have been properly horrified by our own sin and by the prospect of, of, of standing before a holy and righteous God and we have repented, oh, the love of God that is ours, that floods our heart and mind and soul is beyond anything we should have ever received, certainly beyond anything that we deserve. May our hearts rise to this one who loves us at such levels. To this one, God, we're so grateful that you refuse to live in a way that would contradict your character, to treat us in a way that would contradict your character, but that you are both just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. We believe, help our unbelief. Increase our faith. Make us more like Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.